This episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast sponsored in part by Strix Occidentalis Carina, the northern spotted owl. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Chad Hansen co-founded the John Muir Project in 1996. He first became involved in national forest protection after hiking the 2,700-mile Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada with his older brother in 1989. During this hike, he witnessed firsthand the devastation caused by rampant commercial logging on our national forests in California, Oregon, and Washington. He's the author of Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Today we start where Chad decided to start his conservation work, on the PCT in 1989. I started backpacking uh, when I was a kid, about 11 years old, and uh, so I, I, I had been backpacking for a number of years before my older brother and I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail in 1989. At that time, I was 22. And um, my all my backpacking, you know, really up until that point was, was in protected landscapes. It was in national parks. It was in wilderness areas, almost all of it. And so I really didn't understand the distinction between protected public lands and public lands that are not protected, public lands that are open to logging, uh, like national forests. And my brother and I figured that out the hard way um, as we hiked further north on the Pacific Crest Trail, and we hiked the whole thing in 1989. And uh, we, um, in, in the Northern Sierra Nevada, we began to see all these signs saying, um, Forest Service signs uh, saying, you know, trail washed out, take detour. And we kept following the signs and was adding miles and taking us away from water sources. and and uh, became a source of frustration. And then um, one day we came across two uh, gentlemen who were uh, standing next to one of these signs and writing something on it. And they saw us and they hiked quickly up ahead of us, uh, up, up the trail away from us. And, um, and they had written on the sign as we got up there, you know, clear cuts ahead, it's a scam. And so uh, this is the first time we ignored the sign and hiked ahead. And then within a short period of time, we um, we realized that, um, you know, that it had nothing to do with the trail being washed out. That was just a ruse. So the Forest Service could do its uh, commercial logging program and, and, and hide the effects of it from the public. And of course, we hiked through this massive clear cut. It was just nothing but stumps all the way up to the ridgeline. So we, we hiked on ahead and uh, caught up with these two guys. And, and uh, they were Forest Service employees who, whose job it was to put up the signs and uh, so we ended up hiking with these guys for, for some period of time, and they were really cool. We got a great um, kind of um, you know, education from them about the difference between national parks and national forests, and the fact that the main thing the U.S. Forest Service does is sell public timber to private logging companies and keep the revenue. And, um, and already by that time, the Forest Service was trying to find more creative ways to justify their logging program and all the euphemisms were starting um, already by then, um, you know, uh, before they would just call it logging and they, they started calling it fuel reduction and restoration and forest health and other things just to, um, because these things sound benign or benevolent and a lot of people continue to be confused by that. 
But um, that's when I got involved in forest protection. You know, was, we got to Canada, and I, as soon as we got back down to Southern California, where we were living at that time, um, I, be, I, got, I got involved, and I've been involved ever since. What's it like to be a conservationist for that long, working on these issues and watching very closely, closer than most people do, giant areas just being attacked all the time, some of your favorite areas. What's the secret to your longevity in this so-called business of conservation? Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks. Uh, I, I, I have two very diametrically opposed reactions and responses that, that I'm always sort of grappling with at any given point in time. Um, but as far as my longevity, and to me, it's, it's really driven by my love of wild places and, and my, my endless fascination with ecology, forest ecology, uh, fire ecology, the, the intricacy, the complexity, the beauty of the relationships in nature that uh, you know, um, reflect evolutionary processes that go back over 350 million years. I, I, I'm, I'm just absolutely in love with the natural world, always have been. And so to me, that fundament, fundamentally is what drives me. Uh, I will say that um, when I see places that I know, um, places that I love, when I see them get uh, logged, when I see roads punched through, when I see um, them uh, destroyed by various types of commodity extraction, including logging or mining, oil and gas exploration. It, it's hard. I mean, it really is. I, I have a personal reaction to it. I have no problem um, acknowledging that. Uh, I, um, I, I mourn the loss of these places. I do. Um, and, um, and I always have, uh, because you know, first and foremost, I'm a field ecologist. I'm a, I'm a boots on the ground guy. I spend thousands and thousands of hours in these places. And and uh, I know many of them very, very well, right down to the individual tree, right down to the shrub, the down log, the snag. Um, I, I, I know areas on a personal level. I know the woodpeckers that live in a certain cavity and where they were living the previous uh, spring. Things that like that, um, you know, that you, you accumulate that kind of familiarity when you spend a lot of time in places and just sitting and observing and watching. And so, it's really hard personally when you see places lost. I will say though, on the other side, I also know places that back in the late 80s, in 18, 1989 or in the early 90s, um, had been fairly recently damaged and destroyed by logging operations and had been converted to monoculture tree plantations. And uh, in the Northern Sierra Nevada and the Cascades and the Marble Mountains. And it's interesting because so many of those places I visited them later in, in, in many cases, and nature has essentially reclaimed those areas in so many cases. These tree plantations don't stay ecologically sterile and monoculture over time. Nature rewilds them just through the, the, the sheer force of natural processes and the passage of time. Um, Pockets of trees die. Now you have snags and down logs. Species they didn't plant and didn't want because they're not favored timber species start to grow in as the wind blows the seeds in or birds and small mammals disperse the seeds in. Uh, shrubs grow in that they didn't want. Um, natural heterogeneity takes place. And basically nature forms these places back into uh, mature and diverse uh, and frankly, wild ecosystems, once again, just through the lack of human intervention. And so for me, that gives me a lot of hope. You uh, say something in chapter one of your book 
uh, that's, you know, a, a lot of us read a lot of news, see a lot of news. And at the end of a day where you've been hit with too much, it's kind of hard to find the hope in, the, in our current situation. You said something pretty amazing. Can you talk about how much protecting and restoring native forests could help with the climate change mitigation? I was kind of surprised by how much you stated that it could help. I think this is something that we need to get the word out on um, nationally and globally. Policymakers need to hear, need to hear this. Um, environmental reporters need to hear this. Conservation NGOs uh, need to hear this. That we absolutely can overcome the climate crisis. So there is hope. You know, we've already seen impacts. We're going to see more impacts um, because some of this is already, you know, of course, already happening. But we can avoid the worst uh, impacts. We absolutely can uh, of the climate crisis. But it's going to take two things, not one. Um, a lot of people realize, of course, nearly everyone at this point who pays attention realizes that we have to shift away from fossil fuel consumption as quickly as possible. Okay, that's well understood at this point. What a lot of people don't understand is that that is not enough. That's necessary, it's not sufficient. That up to 50%, and possibly even more than 50%, of the climate change mitigation equation can be addressed with what we call natural climate solutions and most especially protecting forests in order to mitigate the climate crisis. That can be, that can be half of our climate change mitigation um, approach. And the reason is simple, is that because of many decades of logging in, in forests all across this country and all over the world, uh, the vast majority of our forests have far less carbon in them than they did um, uh, a century ago, two centuries ago. And, and that means there's massive climate change mitigation potential for protecting, protecting wild places, forests especially, but not just forests, also wetlands, also uh, grasslands and chaparral habitat, anything that will can, can store more carbon, especially including where, where there's been degradation in the past. Um, and also, of course, the places that have not been degraded because there's are amazing carbon sinks and carbon reserves. Um, but I think you know, it's important to realize, no, number one, that that protecting wild places and especially forests is just as important to get us out of this mess, this climate mess, as getting away from fossil fuels. It is just as important. And it needs to be done simultaneously, not sequentially. And second, that it's not just about protecting the places that are relatively few now um, that, uh, that have not had uh, past resource extraction or management, so the wild places that, that have not had logging or, or road building. It, it's incredibly important to protect those, but it's also important to protect the places that have had a history of, of, of impacts and degradation from past resource extraction, including logging, because those places can absorb a lot more carbon and become more wild, more biodiverse, more carbon rich over time. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. 
that commercial exploitation thing uh, with the Forest Service really bugged me all the way back when you were talking about it and you just discovered it um, in the late 80s, early 90s. Has has any of that changed? Have they just changed the name, what they call it? I mean, the Forest Service can't self-deal today, surely, like it did back then. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really important question, you know, and, 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 and thank you, by the way, you know, um, for, for, for noticing, you know, just the way I wrote my book, Smokescreen, um, I really did, I wrote it for, for non-scientists, fundamentally, of course, I've got, you know, hundreds of scientific studies cited in the end notes, but I, I really wanted to translate the science um, and also, you know, translate it through personal experiences and, and anecdotes for um, a broader public, um, and also just underscore the, the, the hopeful nature, what I believe is a fundamentally hopeful nature of the science that's emerging, um, because it does give us a, a roadmap. It gives us a, a hopeful, positive path forward if we pay attention and follow it. Um, and so, and that really dovetails with your, your next question, which is, you know, has the Forest Service changed? And, and I think this is one of the messages I come back to in my book. I, I, make, I make this point in chapter one, but I also make it throughout my, my throughout smokescreen, uh, which is there is a hopeful path forward. And in order to follow it, we're going to have to make some changes. And we're also going to have to confront some powerful institutions. We're going to have to confront politicians, both Republicans and Democrats. We're going to have to hold them accountable. We're going to have to insist on more, demand more, demand better. And, and the same thing is true of agencies um, like the US Forest Service. And you know, as I mentioned, the Forest Service is not monolithic. There's a lot of good people in the Forest Service. There really are. And that's true today. It was true in 1989. The problem is the laws under which the Forest Service, um, the laws that, that uh, under which the Forest Service operates. And those laws allow the Forest Service and encourage the Forest Service to sell public trees um, to private logging, co logging companies and keep the revenue. It, it, it allows and encourages the Forest Service to be in the commercial logging business, like a giant logging corporation. And, and taxpayers are subsidizing that every single year. And th so that's the problem is that it forces good people to behave badly. And that's as true today in 2022 as it was in 1989. It was as true in 1989 as it was in 1969. And until that changes, we're gonna continue to see problems with the Forest Service. The Forest Service will continue to prioritize commercial logging over other activities because they make money doing it, not just from the timber sales, but also from the congressional appropriations to support the timber sales program. Because of course, a lot of members of Congress, both Republican and Democrat, get a lot of campaign contributions from the logging industry. And, uh, and accordingly, they appropriate large sums of money uh, to the Forest Service to prioritize commercial logging. And, and so it goes. And so over the years, a number of deceptive euphemisms have you know, basically been created by the Forest Service to hide the true nature of what they're doing. Uh, forest health, fuel reduction, uh, forest resilience, um, fire management, uh, you know, you, you name it. There's a number of different uh, euphemisms. Uh, restoration, that's another one that comes up a lot. And these are all basically things that describe commercial logging. The commercial logging uh, is really fundamentally the same as it was in the 1980s. Uh, these terms uh, are used to promote clear cuts, 
um, after fires, post-fire clear-cutting, which is incredibly destructive ecologically. It's being used to promote clear-cuts of old-growth forest and roadless areas. It's being used to log mature and old-growth trees in so-called commercial thinning operations. Thinning, by the way, is another one of these euphemisms. And so the logging program has not fundamentally changed. It's fundamentally the same as it was decades ago. The levels fluctuate. The main thing that's changed is that there's just less logging now than there was in the 1980s, thankfully, because a lot of people in the general public um, and media and politicians got wise to what the Forest Service was doing and started expressing more concern and skepticism. And um, the concern, though, is that logging levels have started to creep up again. And that's really, I think, what we need to confront. And we really need a renewed and more vigorous conversation about ending the logging program on national forests, basically getting the US Forest Service out of the commercial logging business and bringing them into the 21st century. At least one of the most extreme examples of what you're talking about is the Tongass I, that I can think of. And I was just watching a documentary not too long ago called Understory. And I was very, I was struck. I know I've seen the historic range, the full breadth uh, from north to south of the Tongass forest before we started logging, but it had been a long time and they showed it in the, um, in the documentary and it just sent chills. And it, and, it, and it reaffirmed my stance that they're never ever going to stop on their own. Um, you being on the track of this for so long, what is that really gonna look like? What is that gonna take that, you know, cause we have done individual campaigns um, that have been successful, but none of them have changed how the Forest Service looks at its, as, at its position in general. It's still doing the same kind of thing. Right, yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. The Forest Service will never change on its own because the laws that govern the Forest Service essentially dictate its policies. And, and so the onus is on Congress and, and, and us as, as, as members of the public to put pressure on members of Congress, um, especially those who claim they care about the climate crisis, those who claim they care about the extinction crisis, those who promote things like 30 by 30, protecting 30% of wildlands by 2030 and 50 by 50, 50% 50 by, by 2050. Those who are making those statements, uh, including the Biden administration, including progressives in Congress, you know, they need to step up. They need to show leadership. And because we're going to have to actually change the laws and change the policies to get the Forest Service out of the logging business, because you're right, it will never change on its own as long as those laws and regulations are in place. I think what's different now, and I think this is another reason why I'm hopeful, is that you know, back in the late 80s and, and uh, into the 1990s, <clears throat> there were so many different movements that were balkanized, that were uh, doing their own thing separately, almost like in a vacuum, um, but they weren't really communicating. So there were biodiversity activists you know, working to try to protect the, the, the Northern Spotted Owl in the Pacific Northwest from logging operations, um, working to protect the Pacific Fisher in the Southern Sierra Nevada from logging and, and other species in other parts of, of the country. Um, and there were environmental justice activists um, in an environmental justice movement that was growing and building that was focused on the impacts of various types of commercial resource extraction and commodity production um, in terms of the impacts on communities, especially communities that were already overly burdened and disproportionately impacted 
And I think there wasn't much communication between those two worlds. I think that's changed a lot. I think we realize that there are, are profound and profoundly important connections and intersections between movements and that we can work together. We must work together. We are much stronger together. Um, you know, this is one of the examples I, I, I use in my book, Smokescreen, you know, the, the, the wood pellet industry and the, bio, the forest biomass industry, both in the East and the West. And you know, you're, the, the industry is destroying forests. It's harming biodiversity. It is a huge uh, source of carbon emissions um, because basically the industry is burning trees and portions of trees for energy production, like trees or sticks of coal. Um, and uh, as I mentioned in the book, you know, burning trees for energy is even worse than coal as an energy source, which is really hard to do. Um, it produces even more CO2 per unit of energy produced. And in addition, this industry, both in the East and the West, is disproportionately impacting lower income communities and communities of color, and uh, primarily Black communities in the Southeast and in the Northeast, primarily uh, Latino and, uh, and Native American communities in the West. And, um, and these communities are being impacted and burdened by, by chronic uh, particulate and toxic pollution from this industry, um, which is uh, disproportionately siting and locating its biomass and wood pellet plants in, in uh, underserved communities. So I, there are intersections that are active now and developing and growing. And, uh, and I think that uh, between climate, uh, environmental justice, climate justice organizations, biodiversity or, uh, organizations, uh, working together actively in ways that simply didn't exist 20 or 25 years ago. That, that gives me a lot of hope. How can we help with uh, through the John Muir Project? And everybody uh, listening can go to johnmuirproject.org to find out more. But what, what would you have us do um, to take action and get involved? Yeah, thanks. Well, well certainly we have a lot of information in, uh, on the John Muir Project's website, um, www.johnmuirproject.org. Uh, there's a lot of information in my book, Smokescreen, uh, debunking wildfire myths to save our forests and our climate. And uh, of course, you know, people can get the information in the background there. Um, but what it really comes down to is action and, and people getting, getting involved and getting, and getting activated. It's really important, I think, for people to realize that environmental organizations, conservation organizations, scientific research organizations, we can provide information, we can be a catalyst, uh, but we need help. We all need help. We all need people, everyone, to get involved and contact their members of Congress, contact your state legislators, um, write letters to the editor, do all the things, organize you know, um, local monthly or bi-monthly uh, letter writing uh, meetings um, to send emails and, uh, and, and letters or text messages to elected officials, both state and federal. Um, to write letters to the editor, local papers, any way you can communicate with them. Social media posts is a big one. And, um, you know, we do a lot of that as well uh, at John Muir Project, and we can certainly give people advice and tips. And we're always happy to do that and pass along information. And, uh, and that's really what we need, because we need champions in Congress. We need um, members, a certain number of members of good faith, um, some real progressives to stand up and, and actually confront these problems and promote policies that will fundamentally change direction. Do you have a favorite example of what you're talking about, at least on a, like on a regional or a, a local level where people came together and did something you were kind of surprised succeeded any time in your career? 
Sure. Yeah, there, there are countless. There are many. Um, you know, I, I, I look at things right now like the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act, which is this big, bold wilderness bill. It's been around for a long time. It's evolved somewhat over the years. It's uh, is good or better now than it's ever been. Um, we protect over 20 million acres of, of wilderness in uh, on public lands in the Northern Rockies ecosystem. You know, I look at that, and this was something that came together from from uh, biodiversity organizations. And now, of course, we all realize there's a climate change uh, benefit, uh, climate change mitigation benefit to protecting these wild places. And so I think the coalition has broadened. It's gaining traction in Congress in both the House and the Senate. And so I think that you know we can push and, and must push big, bold wilderness bills like that, not just in the Northern Rockies, but elsewhere as well. And I think uh, you know that's another thing that, that, that uh, people can do is contact their, their members of Congress, their US senators, and their, their congressional representative, and, uh, and make sure they're co-sponsoring the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act. I look at things like, you know, what what uh, what's happening in in a number of different efforts to stop some logging projects. Uh, there's a logging project that the Forest Service is proposing on Pine Mountain um, in the Los Padres National Forest. Uh, a large portion of it is a is in an inventory roadless area. Um, this is uh, mature and old forest. Uh, a lot of it old growth forest, primary forest. It's a Native American sacred site. Uh, it has incredibly high biodiversity value. It's, uh, there's California condor roost sites there, California spotted owl nest sites. And the Forest Service is proposing this big commercial logging project in, in this area. And there's been this incredibly active uh, coalition, uh, Native American groups and activists, mostly Chumash biodiversity groups uh, led by Los Padres Forest Watch. Uh, John Muir Project is part of that as well, um, and uh, California Chaparral Institute, uh, Center for Biological Diversity, and, and others. And there's just been this tremendous outpouring uh, of, of public support for protecting this area and, and opposition to, to the logging. Um, local the county has gotten involved in, in opposing the logging project. Uh, cities in the area are opposing the logging project. Forest Service is still you know, proceeding with it, um, it'll probably end up in court. But uh, the point is, is that is that we're seeing types of op types and levels and breadth and diversity of opposition now um, that uh, it simply we just simply didn't see uh, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And again, that just really gives me hope uh, seeing these broad, diverse, powerful coalitions come together to uh, to push for change. Chad, I Really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I thank you for, for talking with me. And, um, and and really, I love talking about these issues and, and, and love talking about the path forward because, again, I, I really am hopeful, probably more now than, than ever, um, because, again, of the, the, the depth and breadth of, of, of communities coming together and working together, uh, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder to, to push for change. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.